When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Lon Seibin. We are back in the diner here at the YouTube space because uh, I want to get into doing more interviews. And I, I got pitched the other day to uh, reach out to Seth Marin, who just wrote this new book called uh, the, the Power of Positive Destruction, which is all about disruption, all the things that I talk about here on the channel as a YouTube creator trying to make it on my own. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to bring someone on who disrupted things uh, long before dis disruption was in vogue, I guess. So joining me is uh, Seth Marin. Seth, welcome to the channel. Thanks and for having me. You are the CEO of LiquidNet. What does LiquidNet do? LiquidNet is a global institutional stock market, stock exchange, where we connect uh, 900 of the world's largest asset managers everywhere around the globe uh, together through the Internet, and we allow them to trade large blocks of stocks and bonds between themselves. So these are the people that manage your mutual fund or your pension fund or you know, large assets under management, um, where the exchanges have simply not kept up with the pace of being able to service such a large institutional investor. So that's what LiquidNet has uh, become. So you help them scale, essentially, to the level that they needed to. We've created this marketplace, this, this community, which allows um, one um, asset manager in London to trade uh, Japanese stocks with somebody sitting in France. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we came along, the only way that you could do it in very small pieces, and it would be the equivalent of, let's say, Home Depot, going to the corner hardware store to buy uh, a million Hammers. It just they're not they're not there to serve. They can't service that. The exchanges around the world are in the same kind of position where they're fine for the retail, mm -hmm. uh, but anytime some institutional investor comes and wants to buy a million of something, um, they it ends up moving the market. That's, that's a bad just, thing if the market moves so suddenly because of that, right? Right. So that's where Liquid came around from. So you know when we came, uh, there's a whole industry that was built to measure how much it. Um, these institutions move the market every time they go and buy and sell. And we, when we came into the marketplace, it was about $100 billion a year, $100 billion a year. And, and that is $100 billion of tax on everybody's returns that invest their money with them. And we figured, hey, you know, anytime you have a problem that's $100 billion a year big, that's probably a problem worth solving. And it's probably some, some advantage to doing that for a company to build itself. Even if you get 1% of that, it's a significant amount. So you call the book The Power of Positive Destruction. And, yes. it, and, it, and people should not be thinking this is just a Wall Street book, because I think no. what you're talking about can be applicable to, to everything. And you started disrupting, uh, I guess, back in the 80s. And talk a little bit about that, because you saw a problem very early on when you were just getting out of college that uh, became kind of the the initial root of this other company that you're running now. So. Yes, I, I didn't know that, uh, you know, where my calling was or that I was going to be this innovator. Um, but my first job out of college was on Wall Street. It was a training program at a brokerage firm downtown New York. And uh, when I got there, I thought that Wall Street was the center of the universe. It was, you know, where everything was happening. Everything was so technologically advanced. Um, except that when you got into the innards of it, it's like working behind the scenes in a kitchen or something and really know how the sausage is made. 
I started seeing how the sausage was made on Wall Street. And there's a whole chapter in the book called What the WTF, <laughs> right. right? And it's like, that's when I started understanding. I started scratching my head. I said, really? Is this how it works? Um, and that was my first uh, um, inclination as to maybe there are things out there that are just not as it seems or as we would expect or why does it work that way? And uh, I think WTF is a big um, impetus. It's a big catalyst for forming, you know, a great idea. You, you've obviously identified a problem. Is it a big problem? Is it a problem that your um, prospects uh, would know that it's a problem? And if so, if you fix it, would it be an enormous advantage to your prospects and therefore to yourselves? So, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, it's like... WTF is one of the things that, you know, can start the next great company. Right. And at your first gig as an intern, you were kind of being rotated around. So you were seeing inefficiencies everywhere. It was driving you crazy. But nobody was listening to you right away, were they? So They were not. This is very relevant to our audience. I have a lot of younger people in the audience who are seeing these things in their own lives. They're, you know, they're on all these social media platforms. They see the advantages of finding efficiencies in their own life. But how did you get people to listen to you as a 20-something kid? Well, it was um, knocking my head against the wall for quite some time. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, this is what led to a lot of the things that um, I learned in the book. Starting out, and, and this book was really written from the perspective of these are the things that I wish that I knew when I was first starting. How do you get people to listen to you? How do you get your first sale? How do you get your second sale? Um, and those are all massive um, obstacles that have to be overcome. Um, so how I did it at Marin Financial and my first company is very different from how I did it at LiquidNet, my current company. Marin Financial was going, knocking on, on doors, trying to quantify what this technology could do uh, relative to what they were doing. But, you know, it was back in uh, the big bull market uh, prior to the crash of 87. And this was, I was 24 years old at the time. And there's this 24-year-old kid telling these masters of the universe, <laughs> that I could save them a few bucks. Who cares, right? What do you know? Who cares? What right. do I know? It's yeah. like, you know, um, so it was very, very difficult to differentiate. In fact, you know, from 1987, uh, I started the company in Marin Finance in 1985. It was only until 1987 where we came out with our first product, which is what the order management system uh, is. And the order management system is the equivalent of taking a paper checkbook and putting that checkbook online, QuickBooks or, or Quicken. And uh, everything back then was paper-based on Wall Street, which led to lots of problems, obviously. And the order management system that I invented at Marin Financial um, automated it and put it online. Um, and, you know, it took a long time for people to get off of the paper checkbook as well, right? But Quicken is like, you know, you can get your reports, you can find out, you know, your, your budgets and, and everything. Same with the order management system. It took us three years of knocking on people's doors um, until it was actually 1990. It was the change of the decade. So it took that long. To it really, really did. And, so, and did you ever feel like you wanted to just give up? Because I think that's a really relevant point for a lot of our younger viewers who yes. you know, maybe start out and nobody listens to them. They're dismissed and then they go away and just get a job somewhere. What kept you going? There's a, there's a part in the book where myself and, and one of the people that started with me, we took a walk around the block and we said, if we don't see light at the end of the tunnel after six months, we just have to close up shop. Um, and after six months, we did not see light at the end of the tunnel. And if we were any smarter and knew how to declare bankruptcy, we would have. But we didn't know how to declare bankruptcy. <laughs> so we just kept on going. Um, and, you know, the moral of that story is that, one, um, most companies really, you know, 
a lot of companies have great ideas, but they fail because they run out of money. Thank God my dad had, you know, was my backer and I didn't have to go and raise money and he kept on funding us. Um, but I knew that it was, a, it was a good idea. I knew it was the way to go. Um, and there was, you know, after the crash of 87, people didn't know that they were going to stay in business. So I understand retrospectively why perhaps they didn't rush to, you know, break down my door and, and buy my product. Um, and I, I, I understand also, um, uh, now that I can look back, that a whole new decade um, was a whole change in mentality. Yes, they were going to stay in business. Yes, the market continued to go up. Yes, you know, they needed to enhance their technology and their efficiencies. So we, we went from 1987 to 1990, we had seven customers. In 1990, we signed 19 alone wow. in that one year. So, really so it was off. off to the races, right. yes. So there's some patience involved then. It was patience, but it was also, you know, the, the um, absolute knowledge and conviction that what we had was the right thing for um, our prospects. It solved a big problem. Um, and and this, was, this was an issue, and this is the type of company where we had to educate the marketplace. Um, they did not know that they had a problem. They thought writing paper tickets was totally fine. And this is a WTF moment. You know, I, I got out of college. I was, you know, early on using computers for word processing. Um, so when I got out of college, it was very familiar to me. And, and the paper caused all the problems on Wall Street. And paper meaning that if I wanted to, to trade a huge volume of stock, this was written up with a piece of paper like you'd write a personal check? Yes, it was a paper ticket. And it would be sent, given to somebody, and then somebody wrote something down in a book somewhere? Is that how it worked? Yes. Really? In fact, that paper ticket drove, um, we counted up to 32 different systems and processes. So everybody did, did it differently. Yes. Wow. And, and of course, there were lots of mistakes along the way, lots of reconciliation. Um, back in the 70s, they had to close the exchange for a couple of days a week because the paper got out of hand. They couldn't process the paper fast enough. So I knew that this was a great idea. And of course, if I had less money, I would have gone bankrupt, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had less conviction, I would have gone bankrupt. But, and you, didn't, but you didn't put in too much of, like, you, you were, I think, probably aware, I was just reading it, you were aware of the fact that you couldn't you know, build the Taj Mahal overnight either. So you, were you careful about how you were putting, you know, keeping the overhead low to prevent uh, early Absolutely, because it was my money, right? right? <laughs> it, was, it was my dad's money. Right. It was it my money. money. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I felt a, a huge responsibility. Sometimes, you know, companies can raise too much money where um, it doesn't matter how smart you are. You, you end up start, starting to make stupid decisions and, and, and uh, costly decisions. Um, if it's your own money or if you're on a, a shoestring, sometimes that is the right way to get started. Not all the time. Um, but... That was, that was an example where we built it slowly on a shoestring. We had to educate the market, which takes time. Um, but ultimately, if you're first to market, then you can own the market. Um, and that's really what we did. We had all the problems. And you know, a lot of what is in this book are uh, lessons I learned from being stupid um, and doing things the wrong way. Um, and uh, I, I tried to use as much of those lessons in starting LiquidNet as I possibly could and in running LiquidNet as well. Because it's not just about the book, it's not just about startups. It's about how to um, identify a big problem, how to create an unfair competitive advantage. This is something that a lot of entrepreneurs, for instance, um, don't really take the time to do. You know, they, they take a look like Furniture.com, I remember back in you know, the 90s. Huge uh, industry, and they said, it's a trillion-dollar industry. If I get 1% of that, it's going to be a huge business. Right. But there's no, you know, why would customers buy from you? What's your unfair competitive advantage? And with, uh, with my companies, we're not going to spend a dime 
unless we figure out what our unfair competitive advantage is. How do we stack the deck in our favor so that and, and, and condense our message down to a 30-second absolutely compelling pitch so that um, somebody that would be, your prospect would be absolutely stupid not to buy your service or product. Right. And, and if you can get it to, to, if you can check all those boxes, you have a really, really good chance of success. Um, but that's not, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. You have to build the right company. You have to build the right culture. You have to make sure you raise the, the right amount of money. Um, and that's just for a startup. The book is also aimed at, at companies um, or people that are, are within companies. There's so many companies today that simply do business the same way that they've always done business. And, you know, today's environment, technology is changing so rapidly, and there are new processes that are coming in, you know, that, that um, a great example in the book is this Mexican cement company, mm-hmm. right? Semex, right. mm-hmm. a Mexican cement company. Not the most technologically advanced right. Uh, right. industry in the world, perhaps, but um, they understood that um, their WTF moment was they understood that their customers, the people who were building large buildings and shopping malls, they order massive amounts of cement, and they, they either ordered too much or not enough. Either way, it costs more money than it should. Right. And Semex took um, just-in-time uh, inventory, um, a process from other industries, applied it to the cement industry, and this company became the largest cement supplier in the world. Right, just by solving a very simple, like, on the surface, it seems like a simple problem that nobody looked at before. That's right, that other people simply looked at as the cost of doing business. Right. And you- there are gems all over, mm-hmm. hidden, in just you know, plain sight. And it's people look at it as the cost of doing business. And you also talk about the fact that not knowing what you're getting into is sometimes the best thing because you don't know what you don't know, right? Yes, yes. Um, if I had a dollar for every time you know an entrepreneur told me, and myself included, if I knew how um, if I knew how difficult this would be, if I knew how long it would take, I would never have started. So t- sometimes, you know, being a little stupid, a little naive, actually works in your favor. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're seeing um, these, these industries becoming disrupted by people that are outside of the industry, whether it's Amazon, right? I mean, uh, Bezos was never in the retail industry. Right. Or Uber, they were never in the, you know, car service right, industry yeah, right. or Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that people within the industry, um, if you don't disrupt your own industry, somebody, it's now... Uh, the ability to do so has become portable using technology, which is very different than it ever was before, which is really interesting. But that is both, you know, the concern, but also the opportunity. How, how much easier today do you think it is versus when you got started? Oh, tremendously easier. Um, it's both. It's both easier and tougher. But you know, you've got Silicon Valley that's really blossomed since I started Marin Financial, my first company in '85. Um, and Silicon Valley is startup in a box. You can go there. You can get a lawyer. You can get an um, accountant. You, you can outsource everything. Right. And you can go and you can raise money if you have the right idea, if you have the right approach and, and, and so on. Um, and sometimes raising money is easier than, than others. So um, if you have the skills, the ability, and the idea, in that regard, it's so much easier than it was when I started. And from a technology perspective, just building technology is so much faster and cheaper today. You know, when I got into the business, there were the, you know, the, the big sun machines, which cost you $100,000. Right. Today, everyone builds on PCs, and it's very cheap, and right. you can just put it up in the cloud and just outsource. And-, and if you're on a platform like I am, there's no overhead. And that's the amazing thing about what I do is that, you know, this studio we're sitting in, everything I'm doing here today is it, it's really the cost of a train ticket for me. And <laughs> Which is amazing. It's amazing. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're disrupting the entire, you know, 
um, uh, uh, either education or entertainment industry, mm -hmm. right? Think about the overhead that used to, you know, to be a studio or, or to have a cable channel. Right. Enormous. The cost, the cost is gone. Right? So, you know, you have the ability, and what's happening is that it's the democratization of content and, and, and information. And, you know, the, the challenge there is that anyone can do it. Right. But the, the ability to get broad distribution is easier and cheaper than ever before, right? So right. everybody has that opportunity today. And, and to, the same, to, to a large extent, it's the same in technology, where, you know, if you have a good idea, um, you, you know, you could raise friends and family, you could crowdsource money, right? right? Mm -hmm. You can get developers, and, and you can fail or very quickly, mm -hmm. or you can succeed. I want to talk about failure, too, because one of the other things that I found intriguing about the book is that um, people see success and assume that you make your money and you're successful forever. Uh, you've been on a roller coaster. Um, yes. you, you're, you know, the height of success, everyone's living large, and you, you're having parties every, every five days or so on some milestone, and then it just can drop out in a heartbeat. You mentioned that there was times when you were stupid or perhaps you didn't see things happening. So, you know, what have you learned from those big errors? I mean, you had some pretty close calls, right? With so, um, this, this book is the chronicle of my failures, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, and, and I think that it's, it's great to learn from, mm -hmm. from your failures. You know, Marin Financial was my first company and that was incredibly difficult. Uh, ultimately, I sold it to ADP and, and we had a nice exit. Um, not that I knew what an exit was back then, but you know, we sold the company. The next company that I started really was a, a, a healthcare company out in Silicon Valley. So um, off the heels of a successful exit in Marin Financial, I figured I want to go compete against the big boys in Silicon Valley um, on a coast where no one knew me in an industry that I knew nothing about. And of course, I'm going to be wildly successful. Well, you know, um, I came back uh, much poorer and yeah. much chastened and... Uh, uh, I came back to the East Coast, and, and I, uh, I went back into the industry that I knew, financial services. And LiquidNet, um, I founded in 2000, and it took off like a rocket ship. Everything, this book is about how to do things right. So, you know, it was, um, I hired the people, I raised money, and, and from the time that I raised venture capital to the time that we actually started uh, generating revenue was only 14 months. Wow. Um, we were uh, an original uh, unicorn where uh, we, we were about to go public. Uh, we raised at a $2 billion valuation uh, five years after we launched, or four years after we launched. Uh, we were going to go public a couple of years after that, um, at a multiple of that, um, and that was in 2008. So uh, we were just about to go on a roadshow, yep. um, and uh, our our bankers started going bankrupt. So. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> when the bankers were out of money, you know you're in trouble, right? Yes. Yep. So clearly it wasn't a good time mm -hmm. to, to go public. And uh, the problem was that our, we serve our customer base are the asset managers. And in the crash um, and in the great financial recession, they lost half their assets, which was the second time in the decade that they had, mm -hmm. had done that. So our customers were, um, you know, unhealthy. Mm. And ultimately, that had to reflect on us. So we went from anything that we touched turned to gold to anything that we touched was lead. And, you know, we were the smartest and then we were the dumbest. Mm. And I don't think that that really happened overnight to us. Right. But, you know, it, it uh, reflected that, you know, um, how... Um, you know, a, a rising tide could lift a lot of ships right. and, and make a lot of people look smart. 
So yeah, we went through um, really, really tough times from really 2009 to 2012, I would say. Not that long ago that you came out of the woods. No, it wasn't. And it was incredibly painful. And we had to lay people off and we had to refocus people. Um, and we made a lot of mistakes uh, along those uh, along that that path as well. Um, but you know, in the end, it really taught us that what really does not kill you makes you stronger. We're such a much stronger company You're learning now. Learning from everything that went bad, and your instinct probably tells you at some point, "Ooh, I felt this 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 kind of fear before. I know what's causing it." Right? Is is that helping? Well, we were growing so quickly that you know we accepted a lot of mediocrity. We didn't really know um, that we were mediocre, but we learned it right <laughs> when we right. really um, right. had to perform um, and had to change directions. So, um, so yeah, it it, um, it showed us there was a lot of introspection, obviously, and we um, we went through a lot of changes. I changed uh, a great deal of my upper management. Um, and really refocused um, and down to what our core strengths were. We continued to invest. We continued to expand um, throughout the recession because I knew that, um, you know, we really had a good thing, and I believe that this was a cyclical turn, bad as it was. Um, But I knew that as long as we continue to um, invest in our technology and in our products and services and in our people, that... um, when the tide changed, we would come out of it much better than our competition. And so we have. So, you know, the last few years have been um, amazing, even though our customer base continues to decline. Right. Assets continue to flow out of our customers. But we continue to grow and gain con- continued market share um, because I think that we have shown and we continue to hold to our core values, to our culture, and to the fact that everything that we're going to do, we need to make sure that we have that unfair competitive advantage to make sure that we stack the deck and we can compete. And if you are failing, how do you admit it to yourself? Like to that point where, you know, I've seen many times I get pitched products to review all the time and I'm saying this, this is not going to work. And yet the person who's pitching this doesn't understand that their product isn't viable because they just can't accept the fact that they are wrong. So um, how, how, how do you train yourself to know when it's just not working? So it's very difficult for an individual to say something's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the culture that we have. And, and we have to, we, we, we teach ourselves to be brutally honest. And in LiquidNet, we are um, so much harder on ourselves than people, outside people are on us. You know, we take a, a really tough, critical view of everything that we do. One of the philosophies that we have is, you know, when we hire somebody new, we say, we would much rather you assume that everything that we do is wrong. Mm-hmm. And part of your responsibility is to help us fix it, right? Mm-hmm. So that should get rid of the ego, and right. that should get rid of, you know, not invented here, mm-hmm. and I don't want to hear it. Right. Um, so uh, if you were in a leadership meeting with me, um, you would not know that I was the CEO of the company okay. because of the, um, you know, lack of respect or, or <laughs> deference <laughs> right. to my ideas. Right. And uh, one of the greatest examples that I have in the book is that, um, you know, I was in a meeting with a whole bunch of people, including an intern at the time, and I was very excited about an idea, and I was pitching the idea to everybody, and obviously I was enthusiastic. And uh, the intern uh, raised their hand at the end of my presentation and said, I don't think it's going to work. And, uh, you know, after I got over the shock, <laughs> who are you? Um, <laughs> yeah, who are you, and why, why are you in this room? Um, I asked him to explain And when he was done explaining, he was right. 
and that shot down my idea in front of everybody, which wow. was totally fine, but that was the right thing to right, do. Right. So, um, was I that a learned to... behavior? Or was that something you always had as part of your... Uh, of, of, oh, it was always something that I had. Yeah. And, you know, if, if one of my people is, uh, and we've hired people, you know, if they become a yes man, and we've had it on the board, and we've had it, you know, certainly throughout the company, they're just not the right person for LiquidNet. You know, LiquidNet is not right for everybody, and everybody's not right for LiquidNet. Uh, but we want people that are going to be vocal and not afraid to, to uh, speak up. It's one of the reasons why we got rid of all titles, you know. If you're a... Um, you know, I don't even know what the, the, the titles are, but there's an associate vice president, a vice president, an executive vice right. president, a super vice president, yeah. you know, an ex and if you have a super vice president that's sitting next to an associate vice president. Right. That's a ranking, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a hierarchy, and, right. and this person is not going to talk. Yeah. And we said we don't want any of that. At a table, everybody's equal, mm -hmm. and everybody has a say. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it and breathe it. So... I make sure that that happens throughout the entire organization. Um, and that really allows people to speak their mind and to tell me when I'm being stupid or, you know, if I'm smoking something at the time, <laughs> or, you know, what are you thinking? Right, right. And I need that. You need that, right? I need that. And I think everyone needs that. In their everyone own. needs that. So before we close out, if, you, if someone's watching who's got some idea to disrupt anything, um, what should they, where, should they, where should they start? Is it, is it okay to be a solo person with an idea and, and try to execute it? What's... It's st it, that's where it starts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing that I would do is I would go and try it out on some prospects, some people that you would sell it to. And chances are the idea that you thought of is not fully baked. And you want to listen um, to what they have to say. Don't just talk to one. Talk to five or ten. And, um, you know, if you start hearing, if there's a trend that you're hearing, then work that into the overall idea. And maybe the idea is not the right idea. Maybe you just get excited about it, and you have to listen to that too. Listen to what people are telling you. And if, in fact, um, you are on to something, then make sure that you've got uh, what, the, what I go into the book and, and is an unfair competitive advantage. And you know that you have an unfair competitive advantage if you can really condense your pitch into a 30-second compelling, absolutely compelling pitch. And if you go to your prospects and you hit them with that 30-second pitch and they said, yes, mm -hmm. definitely. If you, if you bring that, build it, do it, right. I will buy it, mm -hmm. then you're in, in good shape. Mm -hmm. From there, uh, I go into something that I call credibility circles. So, you know, if you have some credibility, if you're known in the industry, that's one thing that's great. If you're not, um, bring some people around you. And that could be, you know, people, prospects from large firms that they want to be on your advisory board. Whatever it is, you know, to get um, other people to validate your idea so that when you go and you try to raise money, you can point to different people, different companies um, have said, yes, you build it. If you, if you build it, I will come. Um, and that would be a great start to, um, that's how you get started in, in building a business. And for those of us watching who are above the age of 40, like I am, and I, I guess you're probably somewhere near 40 yourself. Um, I'm a little older than is that. It, is it ever too <clears throat> late to start? Um, I don't believe so. You know, if you're if you're passionate about um, building something on your own, about starting something, about fixing an inefficient something or other, about doing something bigger and better, um, then I think that that's your calling. Um, if you're just into it to make money, as you know, a lot of people are. You know, I'm going to start this business, 
and you know, I, I, I somehow it's going to be, become rich. If yes. the goal is richness, then that may not be yes. the right thing. There's so many entrepreneurs out there that you know build a business just to sell it. Um, that's never been my style. I really, you know, I wouldn't build LiquidNet. I wouldn't have gone into a business if there wasn't some way that I can make the world a better place, even if it's just my part of the industry, right? And that's what drives me. It's also what drives the people that work with me at LiquidNet. So um, if you're passionate about it, if you've got that idea, if, you've, um, if you really have it in your gut, because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of tension and it's, you know, it's a certain amount of risk. Um, so you, know, you have to be willing to bear that, right. um, potentially for a great reward, mm-hmm. uh, potentially not. Right. Um, but uh, you know, if you've got it in your gut, then go out and do it. Seth Aaron, thank you very much for joining us today. And Thanks the book, again, is called The Power of Positive Destruction. And, and I, I liked it because it was really not a rah-rah story about your success. It was really an honest uh, internal look at what you went through. And I'm glad that you got through it. <laughs> so thank you, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be back with some more interviews soon. Let me know what you all think about these interviews. I really like doing them. So uh, if you want to see some more things like this, let me know. We'll be coming back to the YouTube space to do some more. This is Lon Sivan. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by my Patreon supporters including Gold Level supporters Mark Bollinger and Brian Miller. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash Patreon to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.